Render to the maid here sent by God, the King of Heaven, the key of all the good towns which you have taken and violated in France. She is here come by God's will to reclaim the blood royal. She is very ready to make peace. If you will acknowledge her to be right, provided that France you render and pay for having held it. King of England, if you do not so, I am chief of war, and in whatever place I attain your people in France, I will make them quit it willy-nilly. If they will not obey, I will have them all slain. I am here sent by God, the King of Heaven, body for body, to drive you out of all France. That's a letter Joan of Arc dictated to the English, and it was sent over to their camp, sometimes by having an archer shoot her letters across the battle lines. She wrote a lot of letters to the English during her time in the French army, most of which were mocked and laughed at. In late April, she went to the bridge that was at the heart of the English siege of Orléans, the bridge where they had cut Orléans off from the town's allies, and she shouted at the English to surrender and save their own lives. But the English, led by Classidas, uh, Glassdale to the English, mocked her and called her cowgirl, and the men with her pimps, and told her they would burn her if they ever got a hold of her. A week later, as the French broke the siege and drove the English off the bridge, Joan shouted, Classidas, Classidas, yield thee to the king of heaven. Thou hast called me whore. I take great pity on thy soul and thy peoples. At that moment, Classidas, in full armor, fell into the water and was drowned. And right then and there, Joan wept for him and all the souls who drowned along with him. Imagine for a second that you'd never heard the story of Joan of Arc before. A teenage peasant girl in medieval France leaves her country home, goes to the court of the Prince of France, soon to be king, and convinces him to make her an army captain. Then, with no military experience or training, plays an instrumental role in breaking a months-long siege that turns the tide of war. It's so fantastic you think it was a legend or a fairy tale, but Joan was a major celebrity at the time, and her trial of condemnation after she was captured by the English and sub subsequent posthumous trial of rehabilitation by the French when they'd driven the English out of France provide us with a detailed account, both of Joan's own words in the first case and those of the people who knew her in the second. It's really unusual to have first-hand accounts of what people said and thought in this period in time. So how did she do it? According to Joan, she was guided by angels, specifically the archangel Michael and Saints Catherine and Margaret. She called them her voices, and they demonstrated remarkable foresight and knowledge through her. They transformed her from Jeannette, the peasant girl from Domremy, to Joan the Maid, hero of France. Was Joan divinely inspired? And if she was, how does her story fit into the larger picture of girls and women wielding supernatural power to stage rebellions? Joan was a good Catholic girl but she also operated far outside the limits of her gender, life experience, and social class to turn the tide of a war that lasted a hundred years, performing miracles all along the way. My name's Rob Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors. I am with my grandmaster, Olivia Litterall. Hey. And our discussants today are gonna be Savannah Verrett. Hello. <laughs> yes, it's a podcast, Savannah. Okay, hi. Uh, uh, Jacob Wheatley, too far from the mic. Come on down, man. Hi. Riley almost Riley. fell off the stage. And Riley Claxton, our resident Catholic, you'll remember from earlier episodes. Uh, welcome, Riley. Uh, this is Occult Confessions. We, we, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest time.
retelling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Joan's victory at Orléans took place on May 8th, 1429. One and a half years later, she was in the hands of her enemies on trial for heresy. And on May 30th, 1431, she was burned at the stake. It's difficult to understand Joan's rise and fall without getting a feel for the war she figured in. So, Olivia, I, I know this is a little bit early. Yeah. But I think we need to start with a brief history. A very brief history of the Hundred Years' War. In 1066, William, Duke of Normandy, which is in France, became King of England and so began several hundred years of English lords owning and controlling French estates. In 1337, Philip VI of France had had enough and, and, and he invaded Guinea. The Gu Engl Guyane. Guyane. I was about yeah, to say Guinea's that's a whole like other Guinea. place. Guyane. Where's oh, Guyane? Yeah, Guyane is France. Go ahead. Oh. Well, he invaded Guyane. The English called on the Flemish and the Germans to assist them, and the French called on the Scots, who also liked to fight for fight the English because they were regularly bugging the Scots. Edward III, King of England, claimed ownership of the French throne through his mother. He was the only grandson of Philip VI, but the French weren't having it. They said France was too important to be inherited through a woman, and medieval warfare ensued. Oh, I have been shot. Those damn English longbows, they aren't man enough to let us get close enough to bash their brains in. <coughs> I'm dying. I hate the British. They are so horrible, Pierre. I hate them so much. I know you do, Michael. I always remember those long nights we spent together with our brothers at arms around <sighs> the campfire, hating the British. Tell my wife. The British are the worst. <laughs> that was a French Arnold Schwarzenegger and Cookie Monster <laughs> fighting in the Hundred Years' War. Olivia? Well, I don't know how to top that, but um, French mounted knights were pretty easily dispatched by longbows, as well as knifemen and pikemen who just stabbed their horses. Then along came Charles V or Charles the Wise. Since the French could not beat the English on the battlefield, he had a brilliant idea. I want you to stop fighting the British, but win the war anyhow. How wise. The French conducted raids and assaulted supply routes and by 1380 gained back much of their lost territory, pushing the British all the way to the coast. But the King Charles VI was intermittently insane and English King Henry V was super great at being a king, so advantage shifted back to the English. Let's hear a bit from Henry via Shakespeare. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. After his victory at the Battle of Agincourt, Henry married the French king's daughter, Catherine, and became regent over his new half-insane father-in-law, Charles VI. His plan was to create a plan of royal succession under his line of English Henry Henrys. Well, Henrys, yeah, because we had Henry I in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th. Hmm. No more Henrys. Rather than his father-in-law's line of French Charleses. That is very the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, go on. Didn't make to the eighth on that one? Uh, can't remember. Go ahead. But the French kept up a steady resistance to the powerful Henry. On his third expedition to France, Henry contracted dysentery, which significantly weakened him, as it does. 
In May, he knew his health was failing. He made plans for his son's education and the government of England and France, and then he died. He was 35 years old. Young man. With Henry's death, things took a turn for the worse on the English side of things. The English Parliament decided that instead of paying for the war, they would just tax the French after they conquered their land and pretty much stopped funding the English occupation. They gambled that the siege of Orleans? You're Orleans. Orleans. Fancy. Would bring the French to heel and end the war once and for all. Which brings us up to Joan's career. And that's a brief history of the Hundred Years' War. Yeah, that went pretty well. Thanks. Joan, then known as Jeanette, was born in Domremy around 1412. She was a good, chaste farm girl who had one offer of marriage that she rejected because of a promise to her voices to maintain her virginity. That's my excuse. She was 13 when the voices first came to her a time of life that we'll hear again in reference to the development of supernatural senses in our historical tour of Lady Magic. Joan's voices told her she should go to Robert de Baudricourt, captain of the king's army in the fortress of Vaucalor. Baudricourt sent her away twice, but Joan managed to persuade the people of the town and some of the men of the army, particularly a 57-year-old squire to the king, Jean de Metz, that she was the real deal. They got her some men's clothes to wear and a horse, and Baudricourt agreed to send her, but only if she would let him exorcise her first. Not by sprinting or anything, but, you know, your good old-fashioned... Exorcise. Yeah, not pea exer- soup spewing 360-degree head spin exorcism. He had to do it to her? Well, he wasn't going to do it himself. He was just an army guy. Ooh. He was going to get some priests to handle it. Get a yeah. professional. Uh, so the priest said uh, that if there was any bad thing in Joan, she's, he's standing in front of her now, she should leave him. Uh, but if she were all good, that she should approach the priest. And she approached the priest and reminded him that she had just confessed her sins to him, uh, and it was sort of mean for him to (laughs) talk to her like that. (laughs) So they set off on a fairly treacherous journey to see the king at Chinon, under constant threat of being ambushed by the Burgundian and the English soldiers. So they're sort of wandering through enemy territory, trying to reach the French king, well, French prince at this point, uh, which they call a dauphin. Not to be confused Mm. with the marine mammal. Uh, The Burgundians from Burgundy were French, but they'd allied themselves with the English, and they would play a big role in the end of Joan's story. We hear this from one of the men who accompanied her. His name was Bertrand uh, de Pouligny. Every night she lay down with Jean de Metz and me, keeping upon her surcoat and hose, tied and tight. I was young then, and yet I had neither desire nor a carnal movement to touch women, and would not have dared to do such a thing to Joan, because of the abundance of goodness I saw in her. Joan slept with the soldiers, but they all reported feeling no carnal lust for her. This wasn't because Joan was unattractive. She was probably a reasonably attractive girl. One of her close companions, the Duke d'Alençon, said, Sometimes in the army, I lay down to sleep with Joan and the soldiers, all in the straw together. And sometimes I saw Joan prepare for the night. And sometimes I looked at her breasts, which were beautiful. And yet, I never had carnal desire for her. She scolded the soldiers for swearing. She drove away camp followers a.k.a. prostitutes, unless the soldiers were willing to marry them. That's a buzzkill. When soldiers were talking about sex, they would quickly clam up whenever Joan came near them. There's a legend that the king-to-be Charles VII made her guess who he was when she finally arrived at the French court, uh, which she managed without any problem. But Charles uh, wouldn't have needed this miraculous feat to impress him. She traveled 11 days through dangerous enemy territory and survived. She was convinced that he was destined to become the rightful king of France, which was enough to impress anyone who wanted to be the king of France. 
uh, especially when you had a powerful rival in England. There was also a legend going around that a virgin maid would save France, which put the wind at her back, so to speak. The historical record indicates that in private, she gave Charles a secret sign that convinced him she was for real. But neither Joan nor Charles ever said what that sign was. Any guesses? Well, there's a theory that she had some kind of insight into the legitimacy of his birth um, that she would not have known, but she revealed to him. And that nobody else would have known but him. Mm -hmm. What'd she know? That he was illegitimate. Oh. Yeah. Right. And he was born with a tail. Yep. That he was not human. Sure. <laughs> reptilian? Reptilian? Oh no, he was not, a, he was not a reptilian. Savannah said it, not I didn't me. mean to go there. Charles had her questioned by a faculty of theologians at Poitiers, and they determined that she was, at the very least, not under the influence of the devil and couldn't really do anybody any harm. Not a raging endorsement, but... I mean, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good recommendation. I was questioned for three weeks by the clergy of the towns of Chinot and Poitiers, and the clerics of my party were of this opinion that it seemed to them that in my matter was nothing but good. It's important to take a moment to just acknowledge how many clergy members investigated and signed off on Joan before she made it to Orléans. She was already wearing men's clothes, riding a horse, and she was talking at length about her voices. I just want to call attention to these aspects of the story, thinking forward to her later condemnation. All right, so point made. Then Joan uh, leveled up like a character in a medieval video game. First, the king gave her the armor and status of a captain, but no official responsibilities except to continue on to assist at Orléans. That sounds super sweet. <laughs> like you have everything but the responsibility. You get the sweet <laughs> outfit, but yeah, none of the work. That's all I want. And the title, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm an army captain, but I don't have to die. Hell yeah. Then she got a sword. <laughs> Uh, which was almost uh, as King Arthur excalibur as any sword can be, albeit a bit more homely. She uh, was discovered, as she said it would be, buried behind the altar at the church of St. Catherine at Fairbois. So she probably passed through Fairbois on the way, and there was kind of a habit of burying swords behind altars, but, you know, pretty cool. The sword was in the earth, all rusty. And there were upon it five crosses, and I knew it by my voices. After the sword had been found, the prelates of the place had it rubbed, and at once the rust fell from it without difficulty. Then there was her standard, the last piece of her equipment. It was white and pictured a globe bordered with two angels on a field of fleur-de-lis, the sort of French three-leafed symbol. Joan said she liked her standard better than her sword. The vision for the design had come, like the location of the sword through her voices. The standard was wildly important to Joan's role on the battlefield, which was perhaps most significantly about rallying the soldiers' spirits. Which is not to say that Joan lacked for military knowledge. The bailiff of Chartres, Thibault d'Armagnac, said, Apart from the matter of war, she was simple and ignorant. But in the conduct and disposition of armies, and in the matter of warfare, in drawing up in the army in battle, and hardening the soldiers in battle, she behaved as if she had been the shrewdest captain in the world, and had all her life been learning war. Right, okay, so she was only 14 years old when all this was happening? Give or take, yeah. Yeah. Yep. She was about 17 to 19 when she died. So. The whole course of her life basically is from 13 to 19. That's wild. I mean, the course of all these major events. Mm-hmm. So let's just catalog some pretty supernatural and pretty definitely supernatural feats that Joan achieved before even making it to Orléans. Let's start with the pretty supernatural. 
getting Baudricourt and the clergy at Vaucalor, Chinon, and Poitiers to sign off on her voices. So she went to all these learned clergymen, said, I'm hearing voices, and they are saints and angels, and they said, not necessarily cool, but, you know. Neat. But valid. Yeah, we'll, we'll take it. I don't even know if valid, just not oh. the devil. Well, that's better than, wow. so which is still something to say. Pretty <laughs> supernatural. Yeah, that's, that's pretty supernatural. Um, it could be explained by luck or charisma, but it's, it's a pretty strong streak of, of good, good luck. She also was able to point the king out of the crowd. You know, pretty cool. Maybe he wasn't wearing his fanciest yeah. pants that day. I mean, and also what? convince the king. That she's the real deal. And be like, yes, let me lead your army. Historically, <laughs> Charles probably wasn't the smartest or the bravest man. It would so seem that way. He's not big on risk-taking, uh, but he is big on people telling him he's king. So, you know, could, yeah. could be her charisma. How old was he? Charles? Uh, I don't know. That's I mean, a good question. If he was, like, around her age, it might have... Well, I mean, he's, a, he's, he's a bit older. Yeah, he was a bit older. Yeah, yeah. he was a bit older. Not, not in his 50s or anything. All right, so now let's get to the pretty definitely supernatural. Giving Charles a secret sign, and Riley's got some ideas that may have been about his birth. We can't go any further into that. Uh, she knew the location of the sword, which, you know, there's some possible explanations for, but still, it was miles and miles away from her home, uh, and nobody else seemed to know that the sword was there. Uh, and she possessed knowledge of warfare and battle that impressed military men, despite the fact that she grew up a country girl tending cows with absolutely no exposure to battle or war at all. And even in the medieval period, like that's like a hardcore thing that you'd spent some time figuring out. Could she read and write? No. No. Then she had this knowledge. She mm -hmm. just knew how to be in a battle. Wow. Mm -hmm. And she slept with a bunch of horny French soldiers without being sexually harassed. That's an amazing... That is... The most supernatural yeah. part of all of this. <laughs> all right, let's get on to the siege at Orléans. On October the 24th, under the command of the formidable Earl of Salisbury, inventor of steak, the English <laughs> took command... That's the second... That's not a true fact. The English, took com the English took command of the bridge connecting Orléans to the rest of Charles' loyal France. So cut Orléans off from all of its French allies. Uh, but on that same day, the Earl of Salisbury was struck uh, by a cannonball. Tough luck, man. Yeah, he was standing in the window of the Torel fortification overlooking the territory he'd just taken. The cannon shot uh, beat it. <laughs> I'm just picturing some guy like, yes, this is mine. Like, that's the like most movie moment I've ever seen. Like, I'm picturing with like one knee propped up, gazing out a window as a cannon. Boom. So um, it beat in one half of his cheek, Riley, oh. and put out oh, his eye. I thought it was eye. like a big cannonball. Uh, and, and so died. <laughs> is, that even a, is that considered Well, I don't know if he was necessarily even hit with a cannonball. It may have just been the, you know, oh, crumbling oh, stones around him. That's you know. less fun. Um, so uh, that was how the most feared commander of the English forces met his end. To Riley's glee. <laughs> She's the Catholic. I just want to remind everyone. So the English uh, William de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk, took over to face off against the French Jean Comte de Dunois, the Bastard of Orléans, which is clearly the, the coolest title. Mm, is that what that meant? Comte, Comte, de... No, Comte de Dunois. Comte de... Uh, Count, Count of Dunois, Bastard of Orléans. That's kind of badass. Dang. Yeah. On May 4th, she had no official role 
but she entered the fray of the Battle of Orléans to rally the troops. She was so effective that on May 6, she was given an official place in the battle. The French pushed the English out of a fortified monastery, but they maintained control of the Orléans Bridge. Joan pushed to renew the attack, and there was a night battle on May the 7th in which the French brought a fire ship into the conflict, which is just as cool as it sounds. Uh, a fire ship uh, was a wooden vessel filled with combustibles, a.k.a., you know, like dynamite-esque stuff, although dynamite hadn't been invented. Uh, and it was steered or set to just drift into the midst of the enemy and then blow up. The use of the fire ship goes all the way back to the Greeks, and the Chinese used them as well. So they drove the English off the bridge with their fire ship, which essentially broke the whole siege. And on May 8, the English challenged the French to a battle, and the French said, no thanks, we're good now. And so the English marched off. That's me when so... it comes to any conflict. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. People we're... are always challenging you to things, and you're just marching off. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But her role in keeping the French engaged in the battle was so significant that they gave the credit for the win at Orléans to Joan. So was her role, her actual role, literally more like a mascot? Not entirely, because no. she was literally in, in in the midst of things. She was she shot. She was shot with an arrow right in her neck and yeah. was like, going to keep fighting. She did. Did wow. she, was she, she actually received several wounds. Of men? Her, oh, yeah. yeah, her banner was up like any of the others she of the led. captains. She was a captain she of the oh, army. Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. When I saw Wonder Woman, like the new movie, the scene, like when she's like, no, we're going to go mm. and like moves the army along after months of them being there. Like and all these men just follow her. Like my mind went to Joan of Arc. So after Joan broke the siege, uh, Charles was coronated at Rem on July 17. This is all Joan's idea. Some people in the King's Council wanted to press their advantage and continue to attack the British-occupied Normandy, but Joan insisted. French kings were coronated at Rem, and the victory at Orléans gave them the opportunity to make the prince officially king of France by moving the army to Rem to sanctify him. Rem had sort of been cut off from um, Ch Charles' loyal France by this whole conflict with the Burgundians, and now they had access to get there. And Joan said, this is the thing we absolutely have to do. This is the most important thing we could do, is get Charles formally coronated king. Coronation was a kind of irrevocable blessing and an acknowledgement of your power. Uh, so Joan won this argument because her voices had pressed it from the very beginning, which gives a sense of just how much weight Joan and her voices threw around after the win at Orléans, because the voices had predicted that they would win. And she managed to not die and to play a significant role. So her voices are seeming like we should probably listen up. Her parents, two poor farmers from Dom Remy, actually attended the coronation, if you can imagine that, right? Mm -hmm. All of the richest, fanciest people in medieval France, and then these two farmers. There's Joan's parents. There they are. Yep. Just, Just like signs, like, <laughs> yeah. go Joan! Yeah, and they're good They're actually made aprons. nobles. Joan's banner was carried highest at the event, and one chronicler reported Joan embracing the king's knees at the coronation in joy, telling him he was the true king to whom France should belong. The king then started to make a bunch of terrible decisions. Uh, he, as they do. Yeah, yeah. As soon as he got to be king, started to go downhill. He struck a two-week truce with the English and the Burgundians on the premise that they would hand Paris over to him. But instead, they moved their army in to defend Paris <laughs> oh. while he gave them that time off. 
Uh, and by negotiating with the English, the king and his weakness pretty much betrayed the whole initiative achieved by Joan and the French army. So, oh, no. Right, because they were going strong. Everyone was feeling yeah. great. They were winning battles. And then he was like, oh, let's take a couple weeks off. You guys will give me Paris, right, if I do that? And they're like, yeah, no. So he won nothing. He Terrible negotiator. Terrible king. Then things started to go downhill for Joan herself, in no small part because she had become a political figure for the French and began following the commands of French leaders like uh, La Tremouille rather than her voices. She made an attempt to take Paris back from the Burgundians, which failed. Her voices had not told her to try to take Paris. After that, she was sent to break a siege, more or less to keep her busy, and that also failed. And her final failure was at Compagnie, a town under threat from Burgundy and the British army, but not before she performed one more miracle. On the road to Compagnie at Lagny, Joan came across a baby who had died before it could be baptized, which, according to Catholic dogma at the time, Riley, committed the baby <laughs> to purgatory at best. Catholics get um, a lot of flack for this all the way up into the 20th century, mm -hmm. um, the condemnation of unbaptized babies to hell. They, like, try to fix it somewhere in there, and then they're like, no, yeah. let's just go back. Yeah. <laughs> so Joan went with the baby and the ladies of the town to Our Lady of Longy to pray. At last life appeared in this child who yawned three times and was immediately baptized. It died thereafter and was buried in holy ground. Three days had passed, so they said, during which no life had appeared in this child. It was black as my coat, but when it yawned, color began returning to it. I was with the maidens praying on our knees before Our Lady. Back to Joan on the battlefield. Uh, Joan was in the vanguard of the army at Compagnie, and the Burgundians were getting the better of her. The army retreated back into the town, but as Joan attempted to follow them, the Burgundians remained close on her, and the town closed its gates to keep them out, trapping Joan and her men on the wrong side of the drawbridge. And an archer threw Joan down from her horse, and a man-at-arms called the Bastard of Wandome pressed under until... She surrendered herself to him. Pressed under? What do you mean by that? I have no idea. Like, like, what I'm picturing is him, like, honestly, like, just stepping on her and being like, submit. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. Yeah, I think you got it. Oh. Wow. There's a lot of bastards running around. Yeah, there are. I thought that name was fancy titles. Yeah, that is a fancy title, to be bastard. The Duke of Burgundy then gave her over to an inquisition. Ah, the inquisition. Mm -hmm. It's back again. Always comes back. Uh, the University of Paris brokered Joan's transfer from Burgundy to the English to be tried at Rouen. She was tried by the local bishop, Pierre Cochon, and Jean Lemaistre, the representative of France's Grand Inquisitor, who was at the time too busy to attend this trial, which is bizarre <laughs> because Joan was France's biggest celebrity at this particular what was moment. What too busy doing? It's like being too busy to, I don't know. Go, go to the Obama's house when you get an invite? Oh, wait. Yeah, well. Or, but the, like, or the Trumps. Inaugurate. Yep, I didn't yeah. really want to use that one. Anyway, like if we had a chance to burn Kim Kardashian. Oh. Yeah. Oh, but <laughs> mine was busy. weird. Yeah. Anyway. His political ties uh, were to the English Henrys. Uh, bishops at the time were princes of the church who had both religious and temporal authority, often owning their own land. It's sort of weird to think about, uh, but that's totally how the medieval world worked. His political ties were to the English uh, Henrys, P 
Pierre Couchon, that is, and he hoped to see Burgundy split off from France. Jean de la Fontaine interrogated Joan, uh, but he also counseled her and was removed from the trial at the end of March, probably for being too Joan-happy. <laughs> a grand total of 131 assessors served at the trial of Joan of Arc. She was initially given 70 charges, which were reduced to 12. She repudiated her voices and her men's clothing, and she signed an abjuration. So that means she uh, said, you know, made it all up. This isn't real. Wait, she ended up selling herself out in the end? No, not in the end, technically. But you have to remember that before this, she had been through lots of mental and physical torture, had been imprisoned mm -hmm. for a very long time. They actually shackled her by her neck and like her I mean it was she just been through a lot of a lot of torture and a lot of interrogation and so she was so worn out she also the day before this been publicly humiliated they took her out into the town and everyone publicly humiliated her hmm. and so yes she did but oh, well, shortly thereafter sure yeah so she she abjured and then she went back on it yeah, like she the said, next day she was like, just yeah. kidding she There's puts on her men's there. clothing again and insists that her voices are real also knowing that if she were to reject this uh, retraction, that she wasn't going to get that opportunity again. Yeah, if you recalled your admission, you were burned like right away. Mm -hmm. There was so, no so second so She was completely going to her death. So there's a couple of possible explanations for why she went back to male dress. Uh, and, and Riley's sort of um, talking around these, these grosser issues of her mm -hmm. imprisonment. The first is that her male jailers may have forced her to by taking away her female dress and leaving only male clothes for her to wear, sort of forcing the issue of her taking back her confession. The second comes from her last confessor, Martin Ladvenu. He said that the English lords, or, or a particular English lord, uh, had attempted to take Joan by force when she was wearing women's clothing. So she switched back to male dress in order to sort of, um, what am I looking for? Protect Discourage. Yeah. Yeah. That well, was one of the biggest things is that they refused to send her to um, a religious prison, which where she would have had uh, women um, guards, but they kept her at this male prison where they could do whatever yeah, they wanted. Yeah, definitely not so standard practice. male clothing and armor, understandably. Well, yeah. Essentially, the church was doing what the English wanted. The church, like Riley's saying, would have had female guards, but the English were happy to embarrass her any mm -hmm. way that they could. She went through really unspeakable torture. And it's an important part of why scholars believe that she was actually not a prisoner of the Ingl Inquisition so much as the English. The English used the church to achieve the verdict of heresy, which they needed to deal a demoralizing blow to the French people who had relied on Joan as a sort of, you know, mascot for France. Uh, and she is currently the patron saint of France, FYI, uh, by executing Joan. Once she was labeled a relapsed heretic, the church could hand her over to the English without a second thought, as we were talking about, and the return to male dress was all they needed. On the 30th of May, Ladvenu heard her confession and gave her communion. As they lit the fire in the village square, she began repeating the name of Jesus over and over again. She also said, one of her last words, they, she asked someone to hold the cross. So her last words were, hold the cross high so that I can see it through the flames. So Oof. they said, hold it high as she burned. That's actually, that's really cool. That's kind of that metal. was like her last, like she was like, hold it high and like just repeated the name of Jesus. After she had screamed out the Lord's name one final excruciating time, the English cleared back the fire to show the weeping crowd that she was really dead because they were worried uh, that people would think she had somehow escaped 
even mm-hmm. in the midst of the flames, that she could somehow get out. After all, she was talking to angels. Um, so they wanted to show her, look, she's gone. Or rather, you can see her body disintegrating. Your martyr is gone. Many French outside of Rouen actually refused to believe she was dead, thinking it was just English war propaganda. And a series of women claimed to be Joan, beginning as early as the last few months of her life while she was still in prison, and going on for more than a decade later, like Elvis. Oh, no. Or even like Hitler. People claim to see Hitler in South America. This frequently happens with very famous people who die tragically, that we refuse to believe they're gone. Yeah, like people still like swear by the Elvis thing, and I'm yeah. like, bewildered by that. <laughs> He's even he would be old now, right? We don't want any negative comments about our Elvis disbelief. By 1435, the alliance between England and Burgundy fell apart, and the next year Paris was recaptured by the French. Rouen fell in 1449, and by 1453, the English had been driven out of France. Charles VII never spoke about Joan again after her death. Not the bravest of this men. Dude. Wait, the one that she made king. He yes. abandoned her. Right. That's, wow. Well, mm-hmm. he, yeah, he, yeah. Are you surprised? And, I guess I'm not. But <laughs> the, the nicest thing he did was launch an inquest into her trial in about 1450, but, but the inquest fell apart. <laughs> yeah. What does that mean, inquest? So basically asking whether or not the trial was legitimate. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and she, it wasn't. It was a political trial. No. Yeah. So uh, Joan was canonized a saint in 1920, and yeah. So that's our history of Joan, uh, but we're not quite done with y'all because we need to get down to the supernatural and Olivia, the the conspiracy theories. Yes. Okay. So let's uh, start. There's three possible explanations for Joan's voices. The first is Riley's explanation, the Catholic explanation, that saints and angels were speaking to Joan as described. Uh, Jacques Alou, her contemporary and an archbishop, suspected that her voices were an illusion because she was so young and a woman. Um, You know, why would God speak to this teenage girl? But after giving it some time, in the archbishop's defense, he did determine that the voices were genuine. So he was not a believer at first, but he became a believer over time. This same can be said for all of her French judges who had no incentive to approve her plans or condone her voices. They really had nothing to gain from it at all. Yeah. I mean, she could have done some horrible thing on the battlefield and killed a bunch of men, and then they'd have their heads on the line. But if you accept that to be valid to me, then I start thinking about, like, theodicies and, like, how are you, which maybe this is too much, but the idea of, like, God picking a side. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's... All Which the means Old Testament that to deal with. you yeah, have to throw weird. away some aspect. It's like if God wanted the Eagles to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, like you have to Why throw away. Why does God away... have an opinion about that? Isn't it that they say it's either loving God, powerful, or all-knowing? You can only have two. It's like, it's well, a theodicy thing, but... Am I allowed uh, to give my Yeah, my of argument? course you can. Okay. <laughs> That's why you're here. Yeah. <laughs> you have opinions. <laughs> um... So I think that it wasn't necessarily God picking sides. Like, if you look at Joan's mission, you look at her spirituality, and you look at the things that she said, it was never about, I want to take down the English. That wasn't her full mission. Um, She wasn't a big fan, though. She wasn't a big fan, no, but also it's because... So actually, if you look at her childhood and her spirituality, um, she loved or not loved, but had like a huge compassion for the poor and the suffering. They would go in and... Mm -hmm. Because their country was had a pretty big loss in this war and people were really really suffering so when you read the things that she said it was always about the liberation of her people and the defense of her country you like that letter that she sent to England right she was obviously like yeah I'm gonna take you into battle 
But her first thing, you know, she, it was at first a proposal for peace. You know, she didn't necessarily want that. I mean, mm. the first people that died, she got down on her knees and, and cried and prayed for their souls. So I don't see her as a, like, war-thirsty person <laughs> that was necessarily that. But that she, her first thing is that she wanted to lift the siege at, you know, Orliwan. She wanted to be able to help these people. Well, so the voices told her to, though, right? Absolutely, yes. So then is what I'm saying. Oh, and I know. That yeah. she could be the tool of a god who was trying to end a conflict because it was causing so much death and suffering. Let's get on to explanation number two. <laughs> My favorite. The rationalist explanation. <laughs> I love to argue with these. Me too. Mental <laughs> Me too. disorder. Oh. That Joan was mentally... Here we go. Get ready. (laughs) There's a lot of ways to claim that Joan was a hallucinating schizophrenic if we insist on it. I'm just going to tell you my personal favorite story, uh, which comes from John and Isabel Ann Butterfield, uh, who are scholars and uh, I think psychologists or, or, uh, you know. Anyone with the last name of Butterfield, they better come up with some crazy. Maybe medical scholars. So they argue that Joan suffered from bovine tuberculosis. One of her executioners claimed that her entrails hadn't burned. Calcification of the intestines is a symptom of bovine tuberculosis. All right. So uh, let's just take that as an example of a hundred different ways we can claim Joan is schizophrenic or, or off a rocker somehow. In the territory of uh, definitely pretty supernatural, which we've already parsed and been part, her voices achieved a lot of what scholars in my field of uh, sort of occult culture call veridical phenomena. That is to say, her voices told her things that turned out to be true. That she would break the siege. That she would find the sword. That the king would be crowned. Her voices seemed to have never let her down. And there's a reason I sort of wanted to make that clear. That when things started to go poorly for her, she was no longer making the claim that God was telling her to do this. She was just acting on behalf of the French state. But all the things God seems to have told her to do worked out for her. She was beaten by politics, not necessarily by the supernatural. Honestly, you could say that this was a continuation of male misogynistic of a male misogynistic paradigm of a hegemonic uh, patriarchy. Truly, you could say that honestly. What this Riley's was saying with all these words. Sorry, with all these big so words. Many words. So we're talking. <laughs> let me just. Sorry. She's talking about a. I get too into this. Uh, we, we love our uh, vocabulary inclined <laughs> listeners, uh, but for those of you who are a little <laughs> bewildered by that, uh, Riley is talking about a dominant perspective in the yes. culture that was woman hating. And so you could say that by just putting all of us on mental illness that it's a little bit misogynistic, especially of the time. And we can go back and think about the curse of Eve all the way into that sort of idea. Mm -hmm. So there's another theory that Joan was made up by Charles VII as a kind of political ploy. This is the one (laughs) Olivia brought up. This is the one I really like. The theory goes that Charles knew his army was going to break the siege already and sent a shepherdess who was well-trained in the art of war to convince everyone that it was a miracle. So Joan didn't so much hallucinate the voices as lie about them as part of Charles's grand scheme to create a myth of God helping the French. It's pretty creative. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the complications. First, Charles would have had to have been putting a lot of eggs into the victory of the Orleans basket here, right? <laughs> and that victory was far from a foregone conclusion. The English had a pretty good stranglehold on Orleans. And that was pretty good fortune that they broke it at all. Second, he would have had to give Joan a full military training (laughs) 
in only eight months, given the time of the siege, making arrangements at a distance with a girl who lived miles and miles away. It's not like she was at the French court for eight months. That's just the time it took her to get from Domremy to Orléans. Finally, if he went to all this trouble to fabricate a miracle, why wouldn't he use it to his political advantage? Why would he distance himself from Joan after her trial rather than crying out on her behalf as a martyr for the French cause? Terrible idea. (laughs) Bad politics. Her rehabilitation trial didn't happen until two decades after her death. History does not really justify a clever, crafty Charles. We've sort of been (laughs) rightfully talking about him as not the sharpest tack in the pack. He was duped by the Burgundians into a truce (laughs) on false terms. He was weak-willed, and he was kind of a spoiled brat. So him having this master plan is just sort of beyond the pale of of the character of Charles. And and so that brings us to the last explanation now, which is spiritualist or occultist. Joan may have been a particularly gifted psychic, for example. And this would explain much of what she achieved. But if she was a psychic, her ability was incredibly unique and hasn't been seen in quite the same way since. Psychics with unique military knowledge, for example, are are not uh, part of my experience (laughs) in my vast research of spiritualist mediums and occultists. Why can't it be a little bit of, like, a bunch of them? Let's get down to the sort of last conspiracy that we want to touch on today. And this comes from Margaret Murray. Uh, Now, Margaret Murray is a fascinating person. We have multiple episodes that we are going to need to devote to things that uh, Margaret Murray touches on. Uh, Let's just get started with the Joan theory that she has. Uh, Margaret Murray was one of the intellectual mothers of modern-day neo-paganism. In order to get into this theory, we've got to discuss a pretty dark, uh, darkly fascinating figure who hasn't come up yet in today's episode, and that's Giles DeRay. This guy is messed Wow. <laughs> I mean, uh, really. He's so fascinating, though, that I, I think we're going to give him a whole episode in our series on dark magic. We really should. Because... But today, we just want to introduce him to you because he's part of Joan's story. Giles DeRay was one of Joan's close military companions in battle, along with Jean de Metz and the Duke of Alençon. He was known for reckless bravery in the face of the enemy. After being named a Marshal of France for his role in turning the tide of the war, he retired to stage an elaborate play. The Mystery of the Siege of Orléans. It required 140 actors and 500 extras to stage. What? Could you imagine if you needed that for a show? Rob, can we do The Mystery of the Siege of Orléans? If we can get our hands on it, yes. I would like to stage The Siege of Orléans here in in the Eastern Shore. Yeah, the whole campus will have to be mobilized for this. (laughs) 600 fresh costumes were made for every single performance. You didn't even wear the same costume twice. (laughs) Luxury. And if you went to see the show, he fed you and gave you drink. How much were the tickets? Free. Everything was free. (laughs) Where is this man from? This play, which was an enormous money pit, was staged in the decade after Joan's execution. Already we get the sense that DeRay has some issues he's trying to work through related to Joan's death. Now we're going to do some creative speculating here, but all in the name of thinking through the evidence. The play looks like a kind of penance, but the extreme lengths DeRay went to staging it suggests that the man was either incredibly proud of the achievement at Orléans or incredibly tormented by the loss of Joan, or maybe some blend of both. The way we hear about him as a soldier, recklessly brave, suggests a man who would not have let Joan go easily. 
the fact that he let her go at all may have been a source of tremendous guilt for him. Following his exploits with this elaborate play, he employed a cleric named Francois Prelati of Florence. Prelati? Yeah, this he is... said that very, like... <laughs> well, because he's Italian. I'm trying not, to give a, <laughs> trying not to give a French pronunciation of an oh. Italian dude. All right, you're going to like this, this guy, Olivia. Um, so he employs this guy to summon and strike a contract with a demon named Baron. <laughs> We've all been there. Which I believe is the name of Donald Trump's youngest son. It is? Yeah. <laughs> Um, no correlation. But, but the effort failed. Uh, Prelati indicated that the body parts of children might be required to please the demon Baron. Oh, this maybe. isn't the most black magic thing I've ever heard. Like, and Giles Duray found some of those children's body parts, oh, no. which he gave to Prelati in a glass jar. Giles Duray was a trigger warning, late trigger warning for our listeners who are of Case sensitive you stomachs. Case already sense this uh, Giles Duray was accused of sodomizing... Oh, okay, but seriously, um, if you have children in the room, either ask them to leave or put in your headphones or turn this off. Okay. <laughs> Giles Duray was accused of sodomizing and killing children in his castle and tried and executed for the crime nine years after Joan's trial. I would very much like to explain in greater depth how this went down, but it is far more appropriate to our black magic discussion than it is to today, today's oh, discussion yes. of Joan of Arc. Uh, because it's way... As gross as you might imagine this to be, it is much worse. Okay, so... Yeah. Tune in next time. Not next time. Give us a couple months. Uh, the total number of victims ranged between 20 and 600 children. Oh what? God. Wait, but 600? that's a pretty... I understand, 20 yes. and 600? But it is the medieval period, Riley, so... <laughs> yeah. I know, I'm just saying. At least, a, let's say at least thing. 20. Yeah. I mean, that's still pretty bad. Right, that, that puts <laughs> us up in Ted Bundy territory. Yeah, at some, least 20. Something. Well, is Ted Bundy's in his 30s, right? He had about 30. You're a serial, serial killer yeah. person, right? I mean, he's oh, far more he deadly than... years of serial killing? No, no, no. I'm talking about number of victims. Oh, I was going to say he did oh. not last 30 years. That'd be, that's... Wow. He's deadlier than the Manson family. He's deadlier he had, than... I want to maybe 20, but I don't know if it was quite 20. I believe it's right about 20. During his trial, a series of peasants came forward to testify that their children had gone begging for food at his castle and never came back. According to his confession and the reports of his accomplices, after dressing them in new clothes and plying them with stimulants, he could chain them up, abuse them, and then kill them or have them killed by his cousin or servant, often by cutting their throats. This is sort of significant because we have witnesses of the crime and, and conspirators who are also tried and confessed. I would say more Albert Fish than Ted Bundy. Yeah, he confessed to kissing them once they were dead and oh. slitting open oh, their God. bodies to enjoy the sight of their organs. Now, oh. I, it gets worse than this, friends, but that's as far as we're going today. I feel like we're delving into an episode of um, SVU. Sometimes as they were dying, he would sit on them and laugh at, at, oh. their, at their anguish. Oh, my God. Okay, that's it. Seriously, we're done now. All right. We could keep going, but we won't. Could this be some sort of manifestation of his guilt over losing Joan? 100%, I believe <laughs> I mean, that this, this man was in love with Joan. That's I mean, it. clearly something happened here. I mean, <laughs> or was he independently messed up? Oh, yes. But I think that's why he was in love with Joan. Uh-huh. I think he saw her as this. You you see right? it like you like hear about it person. in like culture, like and myth all the time. I think he saw her as this like beautiful angel of light and mm-hmm. this like this is the closest I can get to a god. And Joan was just like. 
and then losing that, what do you do after that? That's true. All right, let's bring this on home. Let's get to Margaret Murray's theory of the Dianic cult. Oh, the Dianic cult. That's right. still alive and well. So, neat. So we're uh, <laughs> we're in a couple of different, we've been veering down a couple of different roads here, but we're going to bring these tangents together. Margaret Murray was an Egyptologist who made a sharp left turn in the latter half of her career and started writing about European paganism. <laughs> We're going to give Murray a fair hearing in our Wicca episode, but for now, let's just hear her, let's say creative, but okay, insane idea about the trial of Joan of Arc. This theory appears as an appendix to her classic witch cult in Western Europe. Murray's main thesis in that book was that the peasant classes of Europe practiced paganism under the noses of their Christian overlords for a good part of the Dark Ages and the medieval period. We're going to hear a bit from Murray herself now. The belief that Joan was God incarnate will account, as nothing else can, for the extraordinary supineness of the French, who never lifted a finger to ransom or rescue Joan from the hands of either the Burgundians or the English, as God himself or his voluntary substitute. She was doomed to suffer as a sacrifice for the people, and no one of those people could attempt to save her. During the trial, the Inquisition asked Joan if she heard her voices around a fairy tree, they further implied that her voices were derived from demons rather than angels, fairies, demons, angels. Joan also heard her voices at 13, the age at which it was believed young women made pacts with the devil, according to Murray. And they executed her, at least in part, for wearing men's clothes, which would have been common to a member of what Murray called the cult of Diana. So all of this amounts to a case that Joan was actually an emissary for the pagan religion which the Christians called witchcraft. So it's not that Joan was falsely accused of witchcraft, but rather that she was an actual martyred member of the peasant faith. And so was Giles DeRay. Joan selected Giles as her personal escort. He was with her through the siege and all the way until her capture at Paris. Perhaps she chose him because he was, like her, a member of the pagan faith. Margaret Murray wonders, and it's a fair question, why Giles DeRay did not do more to get Joan back when she was captured by the Burgundians on the battlefield. Murray suggests that Joan was intended to be a religious sacrifice. Joan was meant to be martyred by her faith as part of a traditional human sacrifice. They just let the church and the English do it for them. The death of the god, so that the god can be reborn, is part of this Dianic cult belief in the cycle of the seasons. The god who is and is born again. Uh, Giles DeRay's Mystery of Orléans was a mystery play about Joan as God. The murders were in fact sacrifices in the tradition of the pagan cult. And Giles DeRay's execution was in the same style as Joan's. He died so that the God could be reborn, I think about nine years after Joan's trial. So he was just continuing this trend of the Dianic cult to sacrifice their members through the hands of the court systems and the Inquisition. Murray says his execution site where he was hanged and burned was actually visited by nursing mothers who viewed him as a spirit of fertility. Weird. <laughs> oh, yeah. So let's talk about why this theory doesn't make sense. First of all, there's no way to prove it. Uh, it requires that we read against Joan and Giles, who both profess to be Christians at their trial. I mean, and not just, like, profess to be Christian for, I mean... It's pretty hard to become a Catholic saint. Like, there's been a lot of Catholics throughout <laughs> right, the life, yeah. but, like, you've got to be really She's Catholic. Like, her childhood, like, they spent, you know, half of her day would be spent, you know, in the chapel, and the other half, she was making flower crowns for statues of Mary. Like, she was a very, like, you got to be really, have a deep spiritual life to be able to be a Catholic saint. So it would be hard, I feel like, to let one pass through the cracks. I'm not going to lie. Like, it goes through, especially in 1920, it goes through about, like, 
a decade of like really intense, not, I mean, for canonization, not even for beatification, but of intense investigation into somebody's spiritual life. To play devil's advocate, (laughs) if she was a pagan at that time, how fearful she would have been as a pagan and to work in the pagan cause, it would have been totally worth it to devote herself from a young age to learn everything she would need to in order to, you know... But Murray's theory of the Dianic cult is based entirely on witchcraft trial confessions, which we know were always coerced. So uh, it's difficult to believe that there even was such a thing. She would be the epitome of what the Dianic cult would want, though, in a martyr. Like, she's prime real estate. Question, though. (laughs) If she was a pagan, would it matter to her if she was a martyr she died as a Catholic martyr and is now, it's like, would that matter? Would she, you know, if she's already going to die, she, she's, she's, she has offered herself up to death knowing she's going to die anyway. Would she want to be remembered as this devout, devout Catholic who died for the Catholic faith? Like, I just don't know. Does that matter? Would that matter to her? I think if she knew in her heart and for her people that she did the pagan thing and she like did something, whether people realize mm-hmm. what it is and they do think it's this like, you know, she's hiding under this Catholic umbrella, I think, to me, it would be worth it. She had nothing to lose at this point, right? Like, she she had literally given away the retraction. She was going to her death, but she still... It was a hard and I, time. And I, of course, absolutely. <laughs> All right, let's get back to Joan, the human okay. being, for one second more before we close this discussion mm-hmm. f- for this episode. What I like most about Joan, perhaps what's most persuasive to me, is that she didn't actually hope to achieve any personal gain by what she did. She believed she was just serving God and her country. She didn't seek out greatness. She just did what she believed God wanted her to do. We know this because before she was captured, the Archbishop of Rem had asked her, Oh, Joan, in what place do you hope to die? She told him, Where it shall please God. For I am not sure either of time or of the place any more than you are. And please, God, my Maker, that I may now withdraw myself, leave off arms, and go and serve my father and my mother by keeping the sheep with my sisters and brothers who will rejoice so greatly to see me again. Kind of a nice image to end on. Joan, having won the siege of Orleans and won back France, goes back to her farm to tend the sheep in obscurity. Olivia, let's bring it home. I hereby adjourn and declare closed the secret meeting or the secret. It's a meeting of a secret order. The meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. If you'd like more information on what we've uh, discussed today, go to occultconfessions.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter. Our handle is. Uh, for Twitter, it is going to be at podcast and then in all caps occult. And then on Facebook, you can just look up occult confession. Yeah, we're going to ask if you uh, enjoyed today's episode to please subscribe and tell your friends. Uh, we want to build up the audience because we are having such a good time sharing these stories Everyone with you. Every one of your friends. Uh, we want to thank Anna Pavon for joining us today. Anna, for playing Joan of Arc. Uh, joining us in our discussion, we had uh, Riley Claxton as our resident Catholic. As always. As always, Jacob Wheatley. <laughs> Bye-bye. And Savannah Verrett. Bye. <laughs> uh, uh, my name is Rob. This is Olivia. Bye, guys. 
We will see you next time for our next installment of Occult Confessions in which we go to New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. For the voodoo story of the queen herself, Marie Laveau. Laveau.